I'm Jonathan Bastian, this week on KCRW's Life Examined. As we turn a new leaf on a new year, what authors can shine some light on our darker selves? I've always found there's a virtue in coming at these things through the sinner, which is very much how Graham Greene presents himself. The sinner deserves sympathy, and sometimes they come home more to us if the guy next door, whose many failings we know, suddenly rises to a moment of, of beauty, and, and that wakes us up. And later, wisdom and hope from the late Swami Vivekananda. So Vivekananda said that in every difficulty that we should first of all ask ourselves, why do I see this? Why do I see this person as wrong? Why do I see this person as an enemy, as not me? If I see something that I don't like, maybe I should look within my own heart. Buddhist scholar Pico Iyer and Vedanta nun Vrajaprana share their favorite authors and books for a new year. That's coming up on Life Examined. For many of us, the new year brings the promise of new beginnings, like resolutions to lose weight, learn new skills, or look for a new job. It's also a good time to undo bad habits, enjoy some outward reflection, and hopefully pick up a good book. So as we close out the chapter on another year, we've invited two frequent guests on this show, Pico Iyer and Vedanta Nun Vrajaprana, to share their thoughts and offer us their reading recommendations. Specifically, we asked each of them to pick one author who has stayed with them throughout their lives, and then explore how this author might offer us some wisdom for the new year. Because so often, we continue to turn to writers to get a better understanding of human nature and the world around us. Pico Iyer is a British-born novelist and the author of a number of books, including The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere. He divides his time between Japan and the U.S., and Vrajaprana is an author and has been a practicing Hindu Vedanta nun for more than 30 years. She lives and works in the Vedanta Temple in Santa Barbara. Well, Pico Iyer, welcome back to Life Examined. Happy to be back here. And Vrajaprana, we appreciate your time. Thank you for being with us as well. Always happy to, happy to be with you, happy to be with Pico. This is always such a pleasure. It's always such a great conversation. Um, Pico, I, I know that there's, there's an author. Well, let, I, I should like to stop for it before we go there first. I, we're sitting here in this kind of liminal space between the old and the new year. And, and I wonder just in general, what, what reflections that brings up for you in, in terms of where we are, where you are, what you feel in the, in the collective world around you, any thoughts come to mind? I have very <laughs> distorted reflections because I don't follow the news and I am here in radiantly calm and uh, and kind Japan. So I tend to be fairly optimistic. I mean, I think there are always challenges in the world, but I'm not sure the coronavirus is going to continue forever. And I feel that there's endless prospects for, for optimism. And really, the more we turn our minds to what's outside us and around us, and the less we turn our minds to what just appeared um, on our screens, uh, the better we'll be reminded of uh, our better selves and the better world waiting to come into being. Yeah. Do you still find reserves of, of hope and beauty as you, as you envision another year? Very much so. I mean, here in Japan, everybody in the blue-skied winter has just celebrated the new year, flocked out to the temples and shrines to receive their fortunes for the year, but also, I think, to pledge to be worthy of those fortunes and to set a tone for the for the year to come. Uh, a few weeks from now, I'm due to be going to Zanzibar and the Seychelles, and I've been longing to do that for forever. And I think maybe in my little circle, my greatest cause for optimism is that 
the pandemic, which has been such a shock, has shaken me out of so many uh, unthinking routines and, and bad habits. And I feel much better able to remake my life closer to the life I've always wanted now than I did two years ago when I was just zigzagging around like a pinball and not really thinking about what I cared about or how I wanted to live. Rajaprana, I, I, I ask the same to you. Um, here we are, stepping off again into a year, and, and for you, what, what reflections come to mind? Um, my concern is like, uh, first of all, I think, Pico, oh, how wonderful for you because you work so hard to do what you did as just a, a really good son. And you worked very hard to make that really happen for your beloved mother, Nandini Iyer, mm-hmm. whom we miss very much. Who just passed away, I should mention, a, a tremendous loss, yes. And then I thought, how wonderful, Pico, that you could go to the place that you, that really absolutely called to you. How wonderful to really follow your instinct. And I think a lot of people wouldn't have done that. They'd have just have stayed in the saddle because they thought that the saddle is where they belong. And I think the one good thing that came out of this pandemic is the ability to people to, to once they were t- shaken out of the ro- routine, as you said, Pico, that it enabled them to step back and go, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't have to do this. I absolutely do not have to put myself on a harness and do things that are not making me happy, aren't fulfilling the dreams I have, are not uh, feeding my soul in the way that I need to be fed. And that's a good thing. On the other hand, it is pretty much shaking the economy up, which maybe that needed shaking up too. But people are, are extremely unhappy about that. So there is sort of a, a yin-yang to this, that in a, in a sort of a larger collective, it's like the economy is is taking big hits, um, People aren't getting what they want, and right. maybe that's something to think about. Maybe we don't need all that we think think that we need. But again, it's also affecting a collective malaise, which concerns me very much. It deeply, deeply concerns me because I have the feeling that we don't think more deeply about the situation, and we tend to demonize people who don't think and react uh, exactly like we do. And that, that worries me greatly. Pico, I, I wonder if you could um, maybe just, just say a word, if you would, a personal moment about what Vrajaprana was reflecting on in terms of your mother and traveling and honoring those wishes. Uh, I, I'd be curious if you'd share anything about that. Well, I especially loved uh, what, what Rajaprana said uh, about us on the individual level, uh, this being a wake-up call. And I think almost everybody has been making resolves to live differently going forwards. And even in the corporate sphere, companies are being shaken out of their, their habits. So I think what Rajaprana said about the collective malaise, maybe especially strong in the United States, um, is, is really important, and I'm too prone to, to neglect that. Um, in terms of my mother, who passed away, as you said, uh, six months ago, again, in, in a curious way, the pandemic was a great blessing. It allowed me and my wife to be with her 200 straight days. That hadn't happened since I was nine years old. It allowed her us to, <laughs> literally, and it allowed us really to cherish um, that important passage into whatever lies beyond with her every moment of every day. And my usual crazy life sends me zigzagging around the globe and um, would put me much too far from from my 
mother. So insofar as the last two years have moved all of us to think a lot about death and to experience death very close at hand, though my mother didn't die of the coronavirus, I think that's where we understand life better. And it's the fact of death that can move us to find a greater joy in life because we can't take things for granted. We, we've all been reminded we don't know how much time we have. So let's make the most of this time. Absolutely true. Absolutely true that I don't think our life is complete unless we realize it, be, it bookends with death, the death of the body, that is, that, that everything has, uh, has a beginning in this life and an end, at least to the body, and that we have to really take that into account. It's like, how much time do I have to be able to f- fulfill the desires and the dreams that I have? If I, f- if I feel like this is important to me, what's my timeline? Because we never know when the, when the, when the rope's going to get cut, not only from the pandemic, but some of us have become much more aware of like, we're aware of the pandemic, but then many other friends have died of cancer or Alzheimer's or something else or a car accident. So remembering how, how that it's, um, it's death is always there. And in a sense, it's our friend. It's Mm -hmm. always a reminder. A friend of ours says, uh, the watch that watch that you're wearing on your, in your arm, in your hand, it's telling you how many how many seconds closer you are to death, which for many people sounds like a well, that's morbid, but it's like no, it's realistic. How much how much are we wasting with with uh, with a life that we're unhappy with, with a way of thinking about ourselves and others that we're unhappy with that we need to change. I've been reminded that so many of the great thinkers, I, I think of a recent guest who, who spoke of the Stoics, I believe, said it was Marcus Aurelius, who one of his recipes of a good day was actually a short meditation or a writing on death. And it, it occurs to me that that exists probably in so many of the great traditions out there. Um, Pico, I, I'm sure you've observed that in your travels and in your studies. Well, I'm delighted to hear Marcus Aurelius <laughs> invoked because he's been my great, great friend throughout my life, but especially in the last few months, um, in every sense, that he's always thinking of the whole and the vanity of, of life. And there he is, uh, a general uh, fighting campaigns in the Roman emperor, Empire, leading the emperor and still aware that he's worth nothing. But yes, when Vajrapana was speaking, I was thinking about Henry David Thoreau, who says, if we remember that death is a law, not an accident, suddenly it changes everything. And I think of death as winter or nighttime, and that those are a part of every life, and they're they're a part of the cycle of life. And the challenge is not to pretend that winter will never come, but how can we find things through winter, and with the imminence of winter, we wouldn't see otherwise. And nighttime is dark, but there are things you can see in the dark that maybe you couldn't see by bright, bright daylight. But as you say, I think... In every tradition I'm aware of, and Vajrapana would know more than I do, um, you know, monks sit with their skulls or... Um, the, yes, the Benedictines and, and surely some others, the Augustinians, with a skull on their desk. It's like, this is what, this is what it's coming to. Well, I, I want to spend some time now transitioning to a, a question I've been wanting to ask you both for a while, which is um, for two people who have spent their life reading and immersed in, in great ideas, I, I wanted you each to pick an author uh, or a great thinker, somebody who's left us a body of work that that may be able to shine a little bit of that light into this next year for us, 2022. Um, so, so Pico, back to you. I, I, I want to just 
in, invite you to to bring someone to us. I know there's many great writers, perhaps, that are on your desk, but but who comes to mind when you think of ideas worth sharing uh, for some of our listeners? I think my choice would sound strange and maybe crazy to many people, but it would be uh, the late British novelist Graham Greene, who wrote the movie uh, The Third Man and wrote novels such as The Quiet American, Our Man in Havana, The Power and the Glory. And people might be surprised that I choose him because he was a broken man, haunted, forever a doubter, uh, always conflicted, and yet I see all his work as being essentially a call to compassion. Um, He's always reminding us that what we do is basically much more important than what we believe, and that instead of trying to seek out perfection in, in the world or in ourselves, how can we begin to live calmly and forgivingly with imperfection um, and that there's no enemy except uh, within. You know, the archetypal figure in his uh, writing is the so-called whiskey priest in his novel, The Power and the Glory. And this is a guy who does everything wrong. He's a priest, Mm. but he spends all his time drinking. His father's a kid. He makes a mess of everything. But in the moment of need, when people are crying out for a hand, he rises to a compassion that even a cardinal would envy. And I must say, I I was so excited when um, Roger Prana used the word demonizing and and expressed her concerns about um, our divided world right now. Uh, Because the beauty of Green is that there there are no... Um, bad guys in his story, or even his bad guys have hopes and vulnerabilities and, and a sweetness to them. And I think that's always important, but especially in the year 2022, as I travel the globe, it seems to me the biggest problem is rage, which is to say ideology. Uh, and I've never known in my life a more judgmental time when almost everybody um, in the age of information is found to have said something or done something foolish 20 years ago and therefore is condemned forever. And I think Graham Greene would would tell us uh, we're all guilty of being human. Mm. (laughs) If uh, by those criteria, all of us are doomed. And we should never throw um, the first stone. I mean, just as Rajaprana was saying, that Trump supporter that we disagree with is probably trying to support his ailing mother. Uh, That undocumented immigrant that you might curse is only trying um, to look after his kids very often. And um, there's a great moment during the war. The British government asked uh, Graham Greene to write some propaganda. And so he came up with a story about... British soldiers triumphantly shooting a German officer. And then they go over to the dead body and they open it up and they find his wallet. And what should they see but a picture of his baby waiting for his dad to return. And it's just, you know, the British government were probably not so happy to receive that. But it's just that reminder that we're all in this together and we all have the same sufferings and fears and hopes. And um, in one of Green's formulations, never assume that yours is the better morality. There's so much in what you said that that catches my attention, that it resonates with me. And, and uh, Vrajaprana, I, I just want to throw throw this back to you. What what comes to your mind as you hear about this this author? Um, I, <laughs> when Jonathan asked, you know, speak on just let's have a conversation on uh, on a writer, on a poet, or even a yogi. I was like so conflicted because the first thing I thought was Shakespeare, Shakespeare, and then I went, 
Yeah, Pequa and I are both Shakespeare lovers. I'm sure as you are too, Jonathan. And then I thought, well, no, let's, do I want that for for the new year? No, and I thought Montaigne. I thought, nah. And I kept going around and I thought, Swami Vivekananda. It's like, what, who, who, what? Yeah. It, Vivekananda said, bless our mistakes. Every single mistake that we've ever done has made us has made us wiser, kinder, more loving. And that should be our goal, not to look at others' mistakes and not to judge ourselves even by by our worst actions, but to judge ourselves by our by our our, our higher, our better our better selves. And Pico, I, I have to say, just following your work for so long, uh, this is this has been an author that, if I may even use the word, has kind of haunted you in, in your life. You, you've talked about how he has reminded you at times of your father, uh, of bigger ideas in your life. It's, it's a figure that seems to have always stayed with you, and I wonder if you could explain why that is. In a curious way, uh, you're absolutely right. I, I, his books are a kind of scripture for me, and I read them for emotional and political and, and moral guidance. And you're right, I wrote a book about him a few years ago, but it was right after a book um, that I'd written about the Dalai Lama. And I felt that both of them, in their very different ways, from different traditions, were speaking of the need for wisdom and compassion. And uh, as you know, I've, I've traveled with the Dalai Lama for 20 years, listening to his give, giving teachings day after day after day. And he sometimes will tell me, I really wonder if people are listening. They're always moved by his kindness and his charisma and his presence, and that's beautiful. And they always see him as uh, a model of what we all could inspire to be, which is also wonderful. But he's formulated very carefully this universal creed for explaining the, the logic of compassion, as it were. Mm. And people, often it goes in one ear and comes out the other. And people say, I could never hope to be the Dalai Lama. And so I thought I would, when I turn to Graham Greene, I think he's offering the same things, but through the back door, as it were, as it is very flawed, mortal human um, that many of us can relate to. Because I think we all know the problem in life is everyone listening to this program knows the golden rule, but how do you exercise it when you're in the middle of the traffic jam or in, mm. in the supermarket? And in that sense, I've always found there's a virtue in coming at these things through the sinner, which is very much how Graham Greene presents himself. And his reminder, just as Rajapana was saying, that the sinner deserves sympathy rather than, than compassion. And sometimes we all know the beautiful things that Jesus and, and, and the Buddha have taught us, but sometimes they come home more to us if the guy next door, whose many failings we know, suddenly rises to a moment of, of beauty. And, and that wakes us up. Gosh, if he can do it, even even I can. And how I treasured what, <laughs> what Roger Prana was saying about blessing our mistakes. I, you know, I was actually scribbling that down so that I could try to remember it and learn from it, because what a beautiful piece of wisdom that was. And this notion that Green presents that, that you mentioned just a moment ago, which is that to, to look at one's actions, um, look at one's, uh, how, how they are in the world or the deeds they make versus necessarily the thoughts or the other parts of them, I, I, that just stays with me as, as, something, as something beautiful that, that just recognizes the fullness of our, our imperfect beings, I suppose. 
Perfect, exactly. And, you know, Green played his own complicated games with with God. He converted to Catholicism, but then claimed that he didn't really believe or he had faith, but he wasn't a believer. But ultimately, all of that is immaterial. And when you're walking down the street and you see somebody fall down, you don't care, is she a Buddhist or a Jew or a Muslim or nothing at all? You reach out to her. and, And really, our life is formed in those moments much more than when we're sitting at our desks and and creating beautiful ideas about the way uh, the world should be. And I know, I think your program has dealt a lot with the fact these days many people say, I'm spiritual but not religious. And I'm almost tempted to say that Green is is religious but not spiritual. I I don't know if he was a spiritual person, but he was basically a human person. And he was religious in the sense that he had a very strong sense of how you ought to act. Even if he couldn't live up to it, he knew what right and wrong were. You know, I was once at a big geopolitical conference and there was a Buddhist uh, teacher there. And that Buddhist person said, to be a spiritual person, you don't need to believe in anything. Know what you are. And I I feel that Green knows who he is and is reminding us to know who we are, which is to say to be aware of of our shortcomings or even our sins, but just as Rajapana said, to remember our better selves. And that's what we so often forget. I'm I'm constantly amused that uh, we're sometimes... um, so reluctant to to acknowledge our innocence. And what we most hide is, in fact, our our vulnerability, our sweetness, our hopes. And we're keen to present a kind of disenchanted face before the world. But actually, we're we're better than we pretend. Mm. Yeah, well well said. Prana, anything in there that that he said that that strikes you or thoughts you've had on Green yourself? That I think that perhaps we're just so afraid of of getting getting more wounded or more hurt or having people walk on us, maybe. Um, but it's so true, and that it's that very vulnerability that allows us to to um, be able to see other people's vulnerability, and will give us more more hope and will give us more compassion for people, whatever they happen to believe. I also was was thinking. Um, it really doesn't matter what people quote unquote believe. What really matters is how do they act? I mean, how do they, when push comes to shove, are you, are you compassionate? Are you unselfish? Are you, are you thinking of others? Because then it doesn't really matter what you believe. You're really acting in a way that others would want to emulate. Are, and when you, at the, at the end of the day, can you look at yourself in the mirror and say, I, th- I, think, I think what I did today was right. I think... I'm happy. I'm happy with that. I think that um, this is what I would want myself to do. If I was looking, if I was looking at myself as another person, this is the way I would want someone to act. I think if we can just have that much, that much self-respect, that will, it will, we will be so much happier, and and so will other people who have to live with us. It's interesting. I, I just had the opportunity to to interview the great philosopher Peter Singer, who who I'm sure both of you know of, and and a lot of our listeners, and also others on on this idea of of giving. Who gives, whether it's their time or their money, and and the studies always come back to the fact that generally 
the people that give tend to have the least monetarily. Um, they're the ones that show up at, at things like toy drives or places where they can give whatever that they can. The middle classes, not not as much, and then maybe at the top, top tier where there's great tax benefits to it. But But it always sticks with me how it is that those who are so close to um, poverty or destruction or illness themselves tend to be the ones to extend their hand. Um, Pico, I, I wonder if that's something you've noticed in your travels. Uh, you just took the words <laughs> out of my mouth, Jonathan, exactly. I think, in fact, the three of us spoke about this maybe the last time we convened 15 months ago, but precisely so. If you go to Haiti or uh, Varanasi in India or Ethiopia, that's what shatters you. These people who have almost nothing by our standards, inviting you in, doing everything they can to help you. Um, and then you may go to Beverly Hills and not quite find that degree of compassion. But you're, you're so right. And I think um, maybe it goes back to what we were talking about with the pandemic. The people who are living very close to uh, extremities, intensities, very close to death, um, are moved to activate their best selves. But yeah, it humbles me again and again in most of my travels, the more uh, disenfranchised or dispossessed the place I visit, the greater is the likelihood of meeting kindness. I've, I've found that as well. It, not even, I mean, of course, in India, where it's really unbelievable, but where the people who have the least are the ones who, who give the most and get the most joy out of it. But even here in Tony, Santa Barbara, where the people who have the most, because they have so much, it, does, it doesn't, almost isn't real to them. Whereas the people who are really living very on a very tight margin, they know how precious it is. They know what a little bit can do and are so happy to be able to share that because they, it's, it's a very real situation for them. And that's really what's, what's very moving, is to see those people who are the first to come forth, the first to to really open their hearts. And it makes it much, you know, you just feel like you've been given this great bounty. I remember once in Sunday school, uh, we had a, a bunch of kids at the time, and I said, Christmas was coming up. I said, okay, here's a question. Do you feel happier? Because I'm going to get this. I'm I said, are you happier when you give something or when you get something? And there was this dead silence. And then one little boy said, when I give something, and then everybody kind of chimed in. It's like we all feel better when we give. So what's the problem with it? <laughs> Why is it so hard for some <laughs> Well, as we, as we kind of begin to um, thank Graham Greene for his services today via Pico, I, I, I wonder, Pico, for those that are, are new to Graham Greene, where, where would you send them in terms of his writings and, and why would you send them there? I would send them first to his book, The Quiet American. And what's so moving about that in relation to what we were just saying is that Graham Greene, much more than most writers, spent his life going to the most challenged and impoverished places in the world, from Cuba to Vietnam to South Africa to uh, the Congo. Uh, he was 
he articulated his huge admiration for frontline workers, as we would call them today, people, doctors, for example, risking their lives to work with lepers in Africa. But the wonder of The Quiet American is that it tells this very rich political story. It's published in 1952. It's about the last days of the French in Vietnam, the Americans arriving. It tells perfectly what is going to happen when the Americans arrive in full force, to the point that every time I'm in Hanoi, it's still the book from the 70 years old that all the kids are flogging in the streets to, to tourists. It's still mm. the most relevant text about Vietnam today. And I would say if you want to know what's happening in Afghanistan and if you want to know what just happened in Iraq, read The Quiet American and it will tell you more than tomorrow's edition of The New York Times. But the other beautiful thing is even as it's telling this political story, it's unfolding this heart-rending emotional story of a love triangle and what happens if you pretend not to love the person you most care for and if you're rival in love happens to be your only friend in the world. And it tells this very private and this very public story at the same time in less than 200 pages. So you could read it mm. in, in three hours. And the final thing I'll say, because I'm keen to hear a lot about Vivekananda, is um, my second choice, if I hadn't chosen Graham Greene, is almost, I'd say, his spiritual cousin, who's Leonard Cohen, you know, the, the singer-songwriter. Mm. And I think, again, he speaks so deeply to people because he's always wise to his own flaws and failings, but never lose a, a, sen a sense of who we could be. And I didn't choose Leonard Cohen because I think people are listening to him already enough. But if you yeah. want something of that same depth and humanity, and especially vulnerability, to use the word Rajapana used, uh, Graham Greene and The Quiet American is where I begin. My guests this week are author Pico Iyer and author and Vedanta nun Raja Prana. They're each sharing one author who might give us some hope and wisdom for a new year. And in part two of our conversation, Raja Prana talks about the inspiration she draws from the writing of Swami Vivekananda. And quickly, we still have a goal of getting to 150 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, and we're just a few away. So if that's where you listen, it only takes a moment. We read every review and it really helps us grow the show. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. We'll be back after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard from author Pico Iyer talk about the writings of British novelist Graham Greene, and in particular, The Quiet American, a novel he recommends for its humanity and honest representation of our own vulnerabilities and flaws. We'll now continue with part two of my conversation with Pico Iyer and Vedanta nun Vraja Prana, and hear from her on how the writings of the 19th century Indian Hindu teacher and scholar Swami Vivekananda remain as relevant and influential today. 
Well, I, I now want to uh, pass it off to Vraja Prana, but you've, you've hinted at, at who you're going to talk about, but I think that uh, this remarkable figure may not be uh, very well known to some of our listeners, which is a shame, but, but an inspirational, powerful figure. So, so welcome us to, to the figure that you bring us. Thank you. Um, I wanted to speak on Swami Vivekananda because I think he's very important right now. Uh, he came to this country in 1893 to represent Hinduism at the Parliament of Religions. He was a disciple of, uh, of Sri Ramakrishna, a 19th century Hindu saint who preached the unity of all religions, that no matter, he practiced re, uh, other religions in turn, and he said, from my own experience, I tell you, every religion is true. Do not try to change other people, just get to the heart of the religion, which is that to realize the divinity within our own hearts, and to see that same divinity within the hearts of others. So Vivekananda was asked to represent Hinduism in America at the Parliament of Religions, which was that the first interfaith gathering in this country. So it brought together uh, Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and Jains and, and Christians of every variety, which was a first. And the, the, I think the whole reason for the for the Parliament was they were trying to show the superior, superiority of American culture and of, of Protestant Christianity. Mm. And of course, of course, the whole thing failed in the sense that it just brought other religions to this country. And that other religions began, it's like, oh, there's more to this. So Vivekananda came and his religion, his teachings on spirituality were, were quite popular. And I think it's because he really struck a particular American nerve. He spoke above all about freedom. And Americans love freedom. It's like everybody's got an inner Marlboro man. It's like, don't, don't, don't tread on me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I'm a free. I'm free American. And I think everybody has that strong, you know, it's like American catnip. You talk to us about freedom and we're all, we've got it. So he spoke about our innate freedom. That freedom is is actually innate to exactly who we are as, as human beings. That's, that's, we tie ourselves down. But that freedom, not the freedom to do what we want when we want, but the freedom to for self-restraint and to be that divinity that we are all the time, that, in, that innate divinity, that, uh, that pure freedom, being, consciousness, pure joy that is our real nature, that the greatest freedom is, is that. Because once we have that, once we know that, then we're not needy, we're not craving, we're not striving, we're not knocking other people out of our lane. We're not in rage, as Pico so, so, so carefully and correctly noted, the amount of rage that we see now. So I think that's really important to think of right now. He was also very much on, on expanding our, our vision of, of humanity, that, uh, that men and women were equal. He was the one who, uh, it was Vivekananda who brought to women the ability to take uh, Hindu monasticism, to take the final vows, which was unheard of at the time. It was also his things to elevate American women and to have them teaching Vedanta in this country, that you don't have to be a male in order to, to teach. Also the one who was, if you want to find truth, look within yourself, but not only in the spiritual sense, but uh, something that struck very deeply with me. It's like, because we're all quite aware of conflict right now, uh, social conflict, family conflict, generational conflict. There's just a lot of anger going on 
and a lot of sort of like, yeah, yeah, complaining, complaining, whining, whining. So we all kind of go into our, our various sound chambers and speak to our friends and we all agree on the same thing, but we can't talk to each other. So Vivekananda said that in every difficulty that we should first of all ask ourselves, why do I see this? Why can I not conquer this with love? Because love is sometimes our last, the last thing we think of when we get into a situation of, of potential conflict. I don't agree with this. This is wrong. You're wrong. I'm right. You're a fool. You're on the wrong party. You, and it's like, no, why do I see this? Why do I see this person as wrong? Why do I think, think of this person as ignorant? Why do I see this person as an enemy, as not, in fact, not me? When in fact, if there's only one infinite divinity, there is no other one apart from a grand, large me. Everybody is included in that one grand divinity. So if I see something that I don't like, maybe I should look within my own heart, say, why can I not conquer this with love? That struck very, very deeply with me. And that's pretty much why I wanted to talk about him. It's like, I think we really have to be much more subjective when we see these problems going on and we think, oh, those people are like that. There is no those people. There's only us. The grand us with a capital U. There's only us. And we have to love and care for and protect each other. Absolute, have that absolute wonderful tenderness and understanding that you would have with your own child. That kind of love and tenderness and understanding that requires all of us to sort of take the responsibility of being larger than we think we can be. But Vivekananda, again, emphasized that innate strength within us, that we have all this capability. Just don't limit ourselves. Uh, enable ourselves to have that strength to grow, to understand, to have compassion, and to show that sort of tenderness that will allow us to expand our horizons and to genuinely love others. I I've just been just been listening quietly and and, and taking this in and uh, I can only pass this off to Pico who has more eloquent words than me to respond to such a such a beautiful thought. Um, Pico, please, what what do you hear there uh, well, in what Rajaprana is saying? I I I want to hear even more, and I already have a question of Rajaprana, a practical question. Mm. Um, but I think it reminded me that one of the part of the grace of the pandemic is, in fact, to remind us that how interdependent we are, that we're all part of one body, all the part of that big us that Rajaprana was speaking about. Marcus Aurelius, whom we mentioned before, would always refer to the whole with a big W. And even though he was a Roman emperor, one of the most powerful people on earth, he felt he was just a tiny piece of this big web that encompassed everybody alive. And we've been reminded these last two years that if somebody in China sneezes, we in Santa Barbara get sick. And that's not a bad thing to be reminded of. They're not somebody over there, as Vajraprana was saying. They're not somebody who just believes in a different religion or is part of a different political system. <laughs> They're part of, of, of essentially the same body. And I've been very moved recently to think about how it's often the mightiest people who are the ones who are humble enough to learn from everybody else. And it's those of us who are small who are always pretending to know everything. In other words, Pope Francis or uh, the Dalai Lama or the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu or Vivekananda, I feel are such elevated souls that they were ready to bow down and, and, and listen to everybody around, which 
not all of us are able to do. And when I hear some Vivekananda's philosophy expressed, again, it sounds to me, though I'm not a Christian, a little like, like Jesus, you know, blessed be the poor, blessed be the hungry. Um, I, I was homeless and, and you took me in. It basically, just speaking for that universal sense that we all have, if we don't forget it, um, that it goes back to being happier if you give something than if you get it. I love that. I love the simplicity of Vrajaprana's earlier question. Are you happier if you give or if you get? If each of us remind, remember that every day, our lives would probably go a lot better. It was interesting that you brought up the, the poverty of Pico because it was actually Vivekananda who started social service in India. Um, because it, before Vivekananda, it was seen as monks had to be separate from the world. The world in itself was was a dirty place and you get you get in you get enmeshed in this sort of maya this nonsense of the world and that a, a good monastic stays in the cave and watches from a distance and you go and you go into the villages and you give your scriptural teachings and you beg your food and and they bow down on your feet and then they give you some food and you move on and you give your scriptural teachings and that has a certain value but Vivekananda said if you want to worship God serve humanity so he started the first social service um, that monks and later nuns, their, their worshiping God would not only be in the temple, but it would also be in digging latrines so that people would have sanitation. It would also be in caring for the sick and picking them up out of the gutters and washing them with your own hands because there, were, there was no money for things like gloves. <laughs> you wash them with your own hands with the water that you could get. And that this was the this was as much uh, spiritual practice as to sit and meditate for twelve hours in a cave. To me, that goes right back to what we were saying earlier, which is that it's wonderful what monks and nuns, nuns believe, but even more wonderful what they do in the world, the actions, the the fruits of that belief in in kindness. And you certainly don't have to be a monk or a nun to do that. But what I love is the fact that he made that sort of like, and then it was. They were, monks wouldn't eat with them, wouldn't be with them because they called them scavengers. This is the thing that the lowest caste, caste do. They, they're dealing with the, with the, you know, the bodily fluids, those disgusting bodily fluids. It's like, no, He's, Vivekananda said, you worship best your God when you, when you serve the people in front of you. But this certainly isn't limited to monasticism, but what he did was sort of expand the Hindu vision is to not, uh, yeah, it's fine, it's all, the world is unreal in the ultimate sense that it's, um, it's temporary. But while you're in it, treat it with the dignity and the respect that it deserves, along with these blessed human beings that is, are part of this great capital W whole. These are manifestations of divinity every bit as much as that is the statue that you're offering flowers to. If you can't, if you can't serve and love a human being, how can you possibly serve a deity. That was the philosophy. I found it very moving. Rashapran, I, I want to I want to come back to something you said that that both uh, that both I think brought brought smiles to our face and and maybe a frown too in some ways. But this American obsession with freedom, and it, it occurs to me as you were speaking about that on a country that was initially founded, of course, on on welcoming different religious traditions, mostly Christian, that with our with our freedom, I think, also now comes a certain arrogance. 
in in how we prize our freedoms or our ways of being um, less in, in perhaps a respect of others. And as you were talking about Vivekananda, th- this idea of how he understood all these different spiritual traditions as as taking the practitioner to the same place. And I, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that um, for someone who may be listening and is wondering, well, can can a Christian and uh, a Buddhist and a Hindu and a Muslim actually really all arrive somewhere together or be on a, on a journey together? I, could you share some more words on that? I would hope they would, because, I mean, I just think of our wonderful little Santa Barbara community and what a, what a strong loving community we have here just in our interfaith group that um, we've we've had a very strong interfaith community here for a long time and I think that because there's so much more commonality in in within the religions rather than differences that I think that when we work with our commonalities in our cares and our concerns we become very very close friends if we decide we want to emphasize the differences, then we have a different situation. But it doesn't serve anybody. We do serve each other when we work for the common good. Uh, Vivekananda said that um, different religions are are sort of like um, gems on a necklace. Each one of them is beautiful. None of them can be changed. If you take one religion away, any religion away, the world is the poorer for it. Every religion has... uh, the point of being there to serve some individuals. And Vivekananda said, as many individuals, so many religions, let there be more sex, let there be more. Because every, he said, it's not one coat should fit all. Everybody has to find the thing that works the best for them to, to be able to enable them to find that innate freedom within them. But since we were talking about freedom, every freedom has has a has a responsibility that accompanies it. And Americans are great for freedom, but we're not so great for responsibility. That if I have the the freedom of speech, I also have the responsibility of what effect is my speech going to have? Not only calling fire fire in a theater, but am I wounding somebody by saying that? Am I going to hurt somebody very deeply? Am I going to enrage somebody that's going to turn out badly for both of us? So I might have the freedom, but my responsibility is as important as my freedom. That Americans are, are really have to do much more about, because it, Americans have a little bit of a tendency recently to become much more sort of like, meh, the three-year-old, I want to, I want to, I want to, I don't like this. I don't like the pandemic. I'm, it's like, get over it. You know, it's like, adjust, adjust reality. But also learning how to, Pico, that's why I so appreciate you being in Japan with this innate consideration that I'm afraid that Americans are kind of losing right now because everybody's frustrated. But consideration and respect is is so important for, for everybody's happiness. Yeah, Pico, I, I wonder what of that strikes you as you speak to us here in Japan and, and just sit with some of that. Well, it's true. One of the blessings of being here is that everybody almost instinctively is thinking about everybody else in every action and every moment. Um, How can I protect the people around me? How can I serve 
their needs uh, and, and preferences more than my own. And so, uh, as, as Rajapana was saying, it's a, it's a great luxury to be here. I've been traveling back and forth between California and Japan throughout the pandemic, uh, and it's quite a shock to the system to encounter um, these extremes. In some ways, Japan, as Rajapana was saying, is extremely good with responsibility, but at the cost of, of freedom. Uh, but what I was also delighting in when I was hearing Rajaprana speak a minute ago was that, again, we sometimes forget that one of the beauties of right now is that the typical person in Southern California can learn from Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and Judaism as wasn't possible before when Vivekananda arrived in 1893. He was bringing something wonderfully new to Chicago. And it's terrific that five generations later, uh, people in California are practicing yoga. They can listen to the Dalai Lama. They're often conversant with the, the poems of Rumi. And in, in my limited experience, I've found that the deeper somebody is in her or his tradition, the more open she is to every other tradition. Um, you know, I spend a lot of time in a Benedictine community in Big Sur, and what tickles me there is that the prior in the community um, practices yoga, sits Zen, and in his cell has a picture of Jesus in the yoga position. Um, mm -hmm. The most senior historian among the monks will always tell you that the reason he joined that cloister was reading Yogananda's autobiography of a yogi when he was 14, and it just turned him around instantly, and he knew where he had to go. I mean, Thomas Merton was brought to Catholicism by a Hindu swami. And so it's wonderful that we all have these opportunities and these openings now that I think in my grandparents' grandparents' day that they could barely have, have imagined. And so Vivekananda speaks for a sense of global possibility um, that's one of the treasures of right now, if only we have the eyes and ears to appreciate it. Well, Vrashaprana, as, as we begin to, to close our time here, I, I, I'm so grateful for these conversations. I, I'm also struck at just how, how Pico can bring us a great novelist who, through the power of reflection and story and inquiry, can get to similar truths than uh, that perhaps uh, a great Swami can or a great spiritual tradition. There's there's such richness, I think, in, in just bringing these ideas together. And I, I wonder if you have any final thoughts that you'd want to leave us with as we as we say goodbye and also head into this this year together. Just really appreciate hearing what Pico has to say. I'm thinking, oh, wow, how wonderful hearing this via Graham Greene and Pico Iyer. What, what ennobling thoughts that... It's so easy to to look at people and go, oh man, that's a failed priest, instead of going, wow, that's a man who really, who really became great, who mm -hmm. really became a role model in his own way, and that's a beauty, because no one, I what I really appreciate in the Hindu tradition is everybody is great in his or her own place, no one should try to be something else apart from who they are. And I think every one of us has a unique role on this planet. And that for us to really come into our own, whatever that may be, not trying to be somebody or something else apart from who we really are, but just manifesting who we really are and, and then being available for other people. And to be able to see that from the side of the back door, as Pico said, it's just glorious. I'm just really appreciating that very much.
And Pico Iyer, I, I, I am so grateful that you brought us Graham Greene and, and could sit with me, too, as we listen to Raja Prana discuss Vivekananda. Um, I, I, I welcome any last thoughts for you, too, as we, as we begin to close. Well, it's such a privilege to, to begin my day talking to the two of you. I wish all my days would begin like this, and, and maybe they could if, I, again, I was <laughs> awake to the possibilities around me. But, um, yeah, I, I, maybe I'll just end with a couple of lines of Graham Greene's that yeah. might be right for the year to come. He said famously, hate is just a failure of imagination. Uh, and then at one point he said something that maybe sounds similar to Vivekananda, which is, would the world be in the mess it is now if we were loyal to love and not to countries? Mm. And finally, and I think this is a theme that's been running through this, this whole conversation, which is being more tolerant but more forgiving of ourselves and everyone around us. He said um, we'd forgive most things if we knew the facts or maybe if we knew how another person was thinking and feeling, what she was going through in, in her own life. And so I guess my sense in the last few years has been that um, the one way to be in the wrong <laughs> is to be sure you're in the right. In other words, this is in our global age more than ever, this is a time to be open to everything and to know that you don't know everything. Maybe you don't know a thing. Um, and that many of the people that we pass in our everyday lives have quite a lot that they could likely teach us. Um, so I'm so grateful for your program, Jonathan, because I think you're actually bringing all these disparate voices together uh, on this show to, to teach and share different positions with everyone in California. So thank mm. you for all you do. Oh. Well, my gratitude to both of you for, for spending this hour with us. Um, Vrasha Prana, just nearby here, me in Santa Barbara, thank you so much for, for your time today. This has been beautiful. Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's always an inspiration to talk to you, to talk to Pico. And I just think, wow, how, what, a, what a privilege and a pleasure it is. It's, it's been a wonderful day. Thank you. Pico Iyer, um, a, a, I think of you here in California, but we speak to you in, in your, your home in Japan. Thank you so much for, for your time as well today. It's great to connect. Thank you, Jonathan. And once again, today we heard from author Pico Iyer, who discussed the work of Graham Greene, and in particular, the novel The Quiet American. We also heard from author and Hindu nun Vraja Prana, who discussed the work of Swami Vivekananda. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you happen to listen on Apple Podcasts, we're just a few reviews away from 150, which is our goal as we head into the new year. It only takes a moment, and it helps us spread the show. We appreciate your support. Have a wonderful week. I'm Jonathan Bastian. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW.